There's this uh, institute called the uh, Gottman Institute, and what they do is they provide statistics and research to help couples navigate the difficulties of marriage. And one of their materials, they have these things called um, the four horsemen of marriage conflict. And what they say is this, that as the horsemen in the book of Revelation predict the ends of times as they come one at a time, they say that there are these horsemen and marriage that when these things appear, these are signs that marriages are in trouble, that they have been compromised. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but one of the greatest indicators or the main indicator that there is a marriage at the precipice of divorce is the sign of contempt that happens and exists amongst couples. When couples are acting in contempt to one another, according to the Gottman Institute, that is the single greatest predictor that divorce is about to hit marriage. Now, contempt shows itself in the context of mockery. You come home and you say to your spouse, ah, I'm so tired, I want to sit on the couch, and your spouse says to you, are you kidding me? I have been with the kids all day, cry along baby. You are pathetic. Or words like, you think you're going to find anyone else out there better than me? Good luck with that. I don't know who would ever want to marry you. It didn't take me long to realize. Sometimes it comes in very aggressive ways like that. Sometimes it comes in subtle ways. But when contempt is showcased in terms of mockery, that's an indication that a marriage has hit rock bottom. Now, I've been thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, almost every marriage starts with praise, at least thought that's what we hear them say to one another on their wedding day. I want to spend my whole life with you. You are worthy. You are the man and the woman of my dreams. I vow to give everything to you, to be with you until death do us part. Every marriage, one way or the other, starts with praise. Think about it. What takes a couple in their journey of marriage to arrive at a point where they have nothing else to one another except for contempt, where the words that come out of their mouths showcase that deep-seated contempt in terms of mockery. Now, I, I, I see that a lot of you couples are really paying attention to this, but let me just shatter your moment. This sermon is not about you nor your marriage. I will not talk about your marriage today. That's for another occasion. And if you want to sign up for the Emotional Healthy Relationship Workshop in the fall, you should. Because those who have been coming know, has it been good or what? Over 120 people have been going through that program. Some of you have dropped halfway through. That's okay. There's mercy and there's grace for you. You can sign up again in the fall and finish up, you slackers. Okay? The sermon is not about you, it's about Jesus. 
Uh, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark in this series entitled The Last Three. First part of the series was focused on the last three years of Jesus. Now we've narrowed it down to the last three days prior to his resurrection. And we're here in the very last moments of Jesus' life. And this is a sermon that's going to start today, but it's going to end on Friday night. So if you want the grand finale for this sermon, you have to go to Key Biscayne for a good Friday service. But we're going to reach a passage here on this very Palm Sunday which records moments prior to Jesus' crucifixion and the first part of his crucifixion. And what we read here in the Gospel of Mark is moments after his crucifixion, leading up to his crucifixion, and the first few hours of his crucifixion is marked by mockery. Jesus is being mocked by the same people that less than a week had praised him as the one who had come in the name of the Lord, as David's Messiah. They had greeted him with palm branches and they had crowned him with king as he, is, as he rode through the gates of the city of Jerusalem. The same crowd, the same crowd that started with praise now ends, it finds itself in mockery towards the king that God had sent into the world. So would you read with me from Mark 15? We're going to read verses 20 through 32, but I will refer to other verses that we don't get to read in Mark 15 as well. So this is what the word of God says. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a school. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, (laughs) you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. As couples who are on the rocks that must return to the days of praise, we also must, in our mockery of the king that, has got, that God has brought into the world, return from the days of praise. How can we stay and not move out of that moment by the gates of Jerusalem as he was being hailed, Hosanna, Here is the Savior, the salvation of God that has come. 
And, and moreover, why have our lives, some of us who have been in the faith or have claimed or professed to be Christians for many years, how have we have come to a point of contempt and disdain and mockery towards God? How can we return? How can we take back the road of praise? That's the title of the sermon today. And in, in order to return, to get back to that place where we were created uh, to, to exist, you were created to be a worshiper. You were created to love God and, and to enjoy him forever, so says the shorter catechism of, of, of our church. And therefore, anything that you do with your life that doesn't involve the praise of God whether it's eating or drinking or having conversations with people or walking at the park or, or competing in a sports event, anything that you do that does not flow from that praise of God is out of place. It's out of purpose. And you cannot expect to thrive but only break down in your life. So how do we begin with praise, and how do we return to that place of praise? There are three things that we must do that we see here in this text. Uh, number one, we must understand what lies underneath the surface of the mockery of God. What's at the core? What's at the bottom? Secondly, we must own it. We must acknowledge and recognize ways in which we also mock God. And then lastly, we must look at the road that has been paid for us, paved for us, so that we may return to that place of praise. So, so first, let's look underneath the surface. What lies underneath the surface of the mockery of God? I don't know if you paid attention to this detail as we were reading the passage, but uh, there are different groups here in this narrative. And all of these people who are very different from one another, who would never get together with one another in any type of context. You, you have here the, the Roman centurions. You, you have here the crowd, uh, the people of Jerusalem, of the town of Jerusalem, and maybe Judea. Uh, you have here the, the religious class. You have the high priests, and you have the theologians, and, and then you have these robbers, these thieves who are being crucified with Jesus. Four very different groups of people who looked down on one another. The Romans thought that they were better than any other nation, especially the Jews. The crowd thought that they were better than the thieves because they were criminals and they were getting what they deserved and the religious class thought that they were better than the crowd because they were holier and more spiritual than one another. And yet they all have one thing in common. And yet they're doing one single thing here. All of them are doing it together. They have joined this choir of mockery towards the Son of God. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says that the natural disposition of the human heart is rebellion towards God. It's disdain towards God. Our hearts are born with that dis predisposition to reject God. And therefore, Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Inside every single human heart, there is the desire to be its own master and Lord. Inside every single human heart, there is the echo of the words spoken to Eve in the garden. God doesn't know better. You know better. The natural disposition of every single human heart is not to connect to God. It's not to respond to God. It's not to love God, but to hate on God, to disdain on him. It's to show contempt towards God and to mock him. And it's very easy for us to read this narrative and and to be reminded of this narrative and to try to separate ourselves because we're Christians and after all, we're sitting in church chairs and we're listening to a sermon and we have given praise to God and there's going to be a moment where we're going to give to God and we get excited about the things that we hear and listen and we say, I'm better than those people in this narrative. I'm not as bad as they are. And and maybe, Pastor, you may be exaggerating a little bit here because I don't blaspheme. I I don't say horrible words about God. I I don't usually even use the word GD. (laughs) I respect the name of God. I, I, I know what it means to hold the name of the Lord as a holy name. I I don't do that. And and I want to tell you that just as like this crowd, you also have this desire to be your own master and Lord. There is that predisposition inside of you as well, inside of me as well. Even though we have been redeemed, our hearts are still sinful. And we see elements of that, and we see reminders of that on a daily basis when, number one, we don't trust the wisdom of God because we believe that we know what's best for ourselves. We have these visions and these dreams about our future, and we know how our lives should go. And we're very certain of that, and we get upset and disappointed even with God when things do not pan out and turn out our ways. It's because at the end of the day, you and I don't trust the wisdom of God. It's because you and I don't believe in the love of God for us. We don't believe that God is deeply concerned with our lives, even the small details of our lives. We don't believe sometimes, at least we don't live as if we have been truly forgiven by the things that we have done. We go on punishing ourselves. We don't believe in the love of God for us. These groups of people here on this day of crucifixion, they didn't believe that God loved them as Jesus was being crucified. And you and I, we don't believe in God's love. And I know that this is true because if we trusted the wisdom of God and if we believed in God's love for us at the core of our beings, we wouldn't live anxious. But you do. The very reason that you are anxious right now or that you go through moments of anxiety, of deep anxiety in your life about the future is because you doubt the wisdom of God. How can my life be going well this way? How can you have a plan for how things are unfolding in front of me? I don't feel love. I feel alone. How can you really truly care about me? If you knew that God loved you, if you trusted the wisdom of God you wouldn't live one anxious moment in your life. But because you and I do, we're just like this multitude here. And what lies at the bottom is not only that we believe that our plans are better than God's, 
It's that we believe that we are better because you cannot mock somebody that you don't feel superior to. So let me give you a light example here. When your team beats your fiercest opponent, what do you do? You mock them. Ah, how did that feel? Who's talking now? I, I must confess that uh, there are some cross-bridgers that are involved in this sinful practice. I see this all the time between UF fans and FSU fans. You guys must repent of that sin. But, but when you mock a team's opponent at their loss, what you're saying is, my team is better than yours. And therefore, as a person, when you mock somebody, you think that you are better than them. There is a sense of superiority that becomes the impetus for that mockery. And if there wasn't that sense of superiority, there would be no mockery because you cannot mock somebody that you don't feel superior to. And here in this passage, what's happening? They're all looking at Jesus and they're thinking that their ways are better than his. They're thinking that they are better than him. And we are the same way. I I, I hope that you realize now that there is commonality between you and these four groups of people here. And and if you don't see that, I want to point them out to you in great detail, if you will. Number one, I want you to see yourself in the Roman centurions who are mocking Jesus on his way to his crucifixion and are mocking him in his crucifixion. So let, let me go back a few verses and let me read verses 18 and 20. If you, uh, actually, let, let's read verses 16 through 20 if you have a Bible here. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can listen and pay attention to what I'm about to read to you. Uh, this is what, what the, the text says. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, all the battalion, all the soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. That was what... Roman centurions would do at people that had challenged the powers of the empire, that have postured themselves as a threat to the emperor. Oh, you're a threat to Caesar? (laughs) You're building your kingdom? Oh, great king. Let me put you a robe. Let let me give you a crown. And, And let me bow down before you. Great king. How does it feel now? As you stand up against Rome, how does it feel now, your kingdom before the empire? How does it look right now? Do you still believe that you're this great king, that you have brought this revolutionary kingdom? Is that what you believe? They would mock because for the Romans, no nation was better than Rome. No people were better than the Romans. 
and no ruler was greater than Caesar. In fact, they called Caesar, I don't know if you knew this, the son of God. Caesar was worshipped as the son of God. And therefore, you must realize that any kingdom that we give ourselves to, that we dream of and we give our allegiances to, other than the kingdom of Jesus, is a way of mocking God. If you have pledged ultimate allegiance to a political party, if you have pledged ultimate allegiance to mammon, who is money, if you have pledged your ultimate allegiance and have chosen to serve and build the kingdom of your children, I want to tell you that children are great, but they are lousy kings. And they will make you exist in a horrible kingdom. If you are building any other kingdom, if that's where your energy goes to, if, if that is where your thought life is consumed with, then you are also standing in opposition to Christ's kingdom and you are mocking God as well. What kingdom of this world other than the kingdom of Jesus are you building? And I'm not saying that everybody should give up their careers and their work and just work for Jesus. No, because you can work for Jesus through the vocation that he has given you. You can work for Jesus. You can build Jesus' kingdom as you parent, like we saw and we heard from these families, as you parent your children, as you love your spouse, as you manage your possessions and your money. But there are ways to of being engaged in all these things and building something else other than the kingdom of Christ? What kingdoms are you building? What allegiances other than an allegiance to Jesus have you given? You are mocking God as well. Here's the second group of people. Uh, first, we have the Romans, and then we have the crowd. And we read, uh, we read about the crowd in verses 29 and 30. Let's, let's remind ourselves of, of what they were saying. And, and those who passed by derided him, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. Uh, if you uh, have been going through Mark with us, you know that when Jesus uh, entered through the gates of Jerusalem, he went immediately to the temple uh, where, where he kicked out the moneylenders and, and he reprimanded them for that which they were doing, selling and buying in the house of God, a place of prayer. But Jesus makes a comment there while he's still at the temple, and that was that he would tear down that temple and that he would rebuild it in three days. Now, you've got to understand that the temple that Herod had built in those days was a massive temple much bigger than the one that uh, King Solomon had built. And if you go there to this day, you see the stones that were cut, that were used to build that massive piece of architecture that was known as one of the wonders of the world back in those days. Herod the Great was known as a master builder. And here's Jesus at this massive architectural structure saying, I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to build it in three days. Obviously, the people that had heard that at first in the temple courts, they thought, oh, wow, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He is renewing the sacrificial system. I don't know what he's doing, but something big, something radical is going to happen. 
And now here he is hanging on a Roman cross and they're passing by and they're saying, where's the temple that you said that you would destroy and rebuild? What's happening? What's going on? They failed to trust the words of Jesus. They were calling God a liar. And so do we when we don't trust the promises of Jesus. When we go against the principles of his word for our lives. When Jesus says, forgive. And we say, how can forgiveness bring restoration? How will forgiveness make me happy? How will forgiveness satisfy the sense of justice that I have inside of me? What good will this do? When I doubt the promises of God, I am mocking God. When, when, when the word of God says, hey, you have no sufficient grounds to divorce your spouse. Oh, yeah, but I don't feel love anymore. It's just, it's just not there. We've grown apart. And the word says, work on your relationship and restore your marriage. Forgive and forget and repent and confess. And you say, how can that make me a happy person? You are doubting the promises of God. You're going against the principles of God. When the Bible says you will not be happy unless you live a radically generous life, unless you give eye-popping proportions of your money and of the gifts and of the time that you have, you will not encounter happiness and satisfaction. And you say, well, but then that's just going to set me back on my dreams and in my plans and in my goals. I can't live without this or without that. How can that be right? You are going against the wisdom of God. You are going against the promises of God. And you are also mocking God just like this crowd. Hope you see this. By the way, how are you guys doing so far? I saw some, like, uh, some, some dry swallows. There's more, two more, if you can bear it. Then we have the priests, the head priests, the cardinals, and the archbishops, and the theologians, also mocking Jesus. Go to verse 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're using theological terms within their own theological framework to mock Jesus. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, What does the Christ mean? It means the anointed one of God. It's not Jesus' last name. There was no Jesus Christ and Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. Christ was a theological term for the one that God would send to restore the kingdom of Israel. He was the anointed one of God that would come in the shadows of David. And, and, And they're saying, oh, look at the anointed one of God. Look at the king of Israel that God has sent to save us. He cannot even save himself. He has threatened to do away with our 
religious and sacrificial system and apparatus. And, and here he is now. Look. Look, at he threatened us. Now he is here, helpless, hanging on the Roman cross. He can't even save himself. What they were mocking were the claims that Jesus had made, that he had come to save the lost, that he was God, therefore he could forgive sins. And they're saying, there's no salvation unless there's obedience to the law, unless there's compliance with our system. And you were challenging our system, and now you, where is God now for you? See, the problem of religion and the way religion mocks God is this. A religious person or a religious system will say, why would I need a savior if I know the right things to do? There are 10 commandments. There are three major pillars. There are eight or 12 steps. They they will say, hey, if I know the right things to do and I can actually do them, why would I need somebody to come and save me? See, religion pushes away the need for a savior based on performance and self-sufficiency and arrogance. And that's what's happening here with the religious leaders. And any time in your life, let me tell you, any time in your life you trusted God to answer your prayers, you trusted God to bless you, you trust that God will accept you in heaven based on anything that relates to your performance, you are also mocking God. Anything that you relate to as your own goodness, as something that God ought to be impressed with. If you don't repent of your own goodness, you are also mocking God. That's how religion mocks God. And therefore, people on Sundays, the great majority of people on Sundays, instead of worshiping God, what they're actually doing is mocking God. Look, I'm so good. I come, I give, I treat people well. You are trusting in your own goodness versus the salvation that God has brought into the world through Jesus Christ. You are mocking God. And then we have the thieves. We have these robbers who are being crucified with Jesus, one at his left and one at his right. And uh, we don't have much here in the Gospel of Mark except for this last line that we read in verse 32 that says that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. But we have more information from the different gospel accounts. And in the gospel account uh, that Luke gives us, he uh, tells us of this conversation that takes place in the moments prior to Jesus' death on the cross between the thieves and Jesus Christ. That they were saying the same things that the religious leaders here were saying. He cannot save us because he can't even save himself. See, the problem with the thieves is because they doubted the power of God. They always looked at their lives, a lives probably filled with a lot of pain and injustice that led them to criminality that had become cynical to everything that was hopeful in life. They looked at themselves and they said, not even God can help me. Not even God can save us from this place right now. Because if he is God, he can't do anything for himself. And I want you to realize how we do that as well. Anytime that you look at somebody else and you say, there's no hope for that person, for that man or for that woman, not even God can do something for them. You are mocking God. Anytime that you look at your own life and you say, there's no hope for me, God can't unfix this. 
you are mocking God. When you look at a broken marriage and you say, there's not even hope for this, God even can't do anything about this, you are mocking God. Any time that you doubt the sovereignty and the power of God in your life and in the lives of others, in any situation, what you're doing is, just like these thieves, you are mocking God. And I hope that by now, even though this was a very hard second point, probably the hardest second point in my sermon's history, um, you have realized right now that you too are a mocker of God and that there are moments in your life that it showcases in a much subtler way, but nevertheless, you are also, through your behavior, through your actions, through your thought life, you are also mocking God. And that has led you to this faith that you experience today. It's stale. <laughs> it's not alive. There's no excitement in worship. There's no excitement to serve. There's no anticipation for anything. There's no expectation. There is no prayer life. There's no nothing because you've been going on for too long in these practices. And as a couple that started with praise, now you find yourself in contempt to your relationship with God. And God is here today through his spirit, and he's touching you in the deepest part of your soul right now. And you don't like it. Take that finger away from there. And he said, no, no, I want to touch there because that has been your condition for so long. And you must recognize that that's who you have become. And you must go back in this road of praise. I want to take you back. The words of Jesus are coming to you in the same way that it comes to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where he says to the church in Revelation, you must go back to your first love. You must return to where you started. You must start with praise. Some of you here today must restart your walk with praise, and some of you need to start with praise. This is your starting point for the very first time. Maybe you've been enmeshed and buried into an environment and a system of religion that mocks God. And God is saying, throw all of that away, just like the Apostle Paul. And I want you to start only and exclusively with me. Start with praise. I want you to stay at the gates. I don't want you to go beyond the gates. I want you to be with me on this very Palm Sunday. And if there's a road back to that moment of praise, if there's a road that leads us rebellious humanity back to that moment of praise prior to the fall in the garden, it's got to be a road that God has paved because we are incapable of paving a road back to God. If our hearts are running away from God, why would we ever pave a road back to him? Never. But there's a road that has been paved, and there are steps in that road. And I want to share these steps with you. Number one, if you were to return, you got to understand, you have to be able to see, you have to recognize the juxtaposition of God's salvation. When God's salvation in Jesus came through the gates of Jerusalem as he was being hailed by the crowd, what do you see? 
You see the ultimate king of the universe marching through the gates of Jerusalem, but he's not marching on a white horse. There's no army behind him. He is mounted on a donkey, and he is being hailed and, and praised by probably just mere peasants. But yet God's salvation was coming through the doors indeed. Do you see power and weakness, strength and meekness? Do you see the juxtaposition of God's salvation on the cross as the crucified Christ bleeds naked and is shamed by all that watch him die, that that was the most powerful moment in history. That's when God was unleashing and unfolding his salvation right before our eyes. Could God be saving through such pain? Could God be saving through such darkness? Could God be saving through such disaster, through such disappointment? Could God be saving? Can you look at the cross and see the juxtaposition of God's salvation that comes to us not in strength but in weakness because that's who we are? He did not come to save the strong, but the weak. And unless you see yourself in weakness, unless you see yourself as a bankrupt sinner, hopeless without the mercy of Christ, you cannot taste of this salvation. You cannot embark on this road that leads you to the praise of God and to the flourishing of your own life and condition. Do you see the juxtaposition of God's salvation? Number two, not only must you recognize the juxtaposition of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, but there's a second thing you need to see, the irony of the cross. While there's irony being cast at Jesus, God is making the irony ironical. Do you see that everything that they are mocking Jesus for, actually God is accomplishing First, they take Jesus to this mount we read here in the text called the Mount of the Skull, Calvary. That's what Calvary means. And it's in that mount of death used to scorn those who had committed heinous crimes. In that mount of the skull, God was bringing and unleashing his new life into the world. Do, do you see that as the crowd looked and said, you're not doing what you said that you would. You said that you would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Do you understand how God was doing away, destroying the reconciling system of religion? In fact, when Jesus died, and we'll see this on Friday, the veil that separated the sinners from the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. That system, that place had become obsolete because he had now paved free access to God through his death on the cross. He was accomplishing exactly what they were mocking him for. And as the thieves were saying, how can he save us if he can't even get down from the cross? That's exactly what God was doing in Jesus Christ. Because had Jesus come down from the cross, guess who would have had to go up on the cross? You and I. And therefore, the only way that he could offer hope to those sinners, to those robbers, and to all of us here today is because he resisted all the temptation. And in that, we see his power as he was saving us. 
And he can share his blessings and his name with us and his inheritance with us because he stayed on the cross. And in all of that, as he was being mocked by the Romans, he was building his kingdom. He was setting the foundations of the ultimate kingdom on sacrifice, love, and grace. Something that would break down the sacrificial and the religious system completely. It's only by grace. It's only by understanding substitution. Which leads us to the last element of this road back to praise. And that is the simplicity of belief and of faith. What is necessary to go back? Faith. I imagine that thief on the cross that initially was mocking Jesus and realized through a supernatural moment who he really was and who reached out to him and said, will you remember me? And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. I I, I imagine that man coming into heaven after that very quick moment. And one of the angels saying, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Did you go to a membership class at your church? No, I've never been to a membership class at my church. Okay, um, did you accept? Did you make any acceptance in public? Were you baptized? No, what is that? No? Okay, do you believe in the doctrine of justification by faith? What is that? I have no idea. Then why are you here? How did you get here? Any answer that you say in the first person, because I did this, I believe this, it's the wrong answer. His answer was in the third person. It was not because I or I did. He said, the man in the middle said that I could come. It was him. He did it. And I'm here. All it takes is faith because what saves us is not the quality of our faith, how big of a faith you have, but it's the object of our faith in Jesus. And if you have enough faith to recognize God's salvation in the weakness and in the darkness of the cross in Jesus Christ, it's enough. He also extends that invitation to you. You can come. Today you will be with me in paradise which means this, that the road back to praise is a road called repentance because that's what repentance means. Repentance does not mean self-flagellation. Repentance merely means acknowledging and recognizing that you have gone in the wrong direction and you may return, you must return to where you came from or you may start things or restart things with God first. And if you are here today and the Spirit is tugging in your heart, And he's saying, you must come back. I have paved the way for you. I want you not to put that aside because that would be mocking God, but I want you to respond. Will we respond and will our mockery as we respond turn into praise? Let's pray. Let me invite the band back here.